Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is January the 6th, 2022. It's the year anniversary from you know what. Some people call it an insurrection, a revolution, the beginning of the American Civil War. Who knows what it is, but um, we're all talking about it. And the media is full of January 6th um, reflections and accusations, according to the Financial Times, just about the perhaps the most reliable of, of media outlets. Uh, Joe Biden blames Donald Trump for the Capital riots on January the 6th. They're called riots rather than civil war. Um, New York Times, perhaps further to the left than the FT, suggests that Biden says that Trump held a dagger at the throat of democracy. That sounds very violent, very civil war-like. The Washington Post, like the Times, a progressive newspaper, said that Biden says that Trump spread a web of lies. Um, The Wall Street Journal, more on the right, more perhaps tending towards the Trump camp, suggests that democracy isn't dying and that January 6th was a riot, not an insurrection, not the beginnings of a civil war. Um, Commentators are divided. For people watching, here we have this image of perhaps an insurrectionist, perhaps an internet thug, who knows what. According to Janan Ganesh, who's been on the show before, endemic civil disorder could be America's future. I don't know if civil disorder means civil war. It's something to be discussed in today's show. Uh, The FT also notes that the Democrats failed to galvanize voters in the year since January 6th. In other words, the problems with the Democrats, too. This is not just a Republican problem. Um, The FT suggests, however, that if America is to avoid more violence and perhaps civil conflict. The burden falls on the Republican Party. Um, About a year ago, I had the Canadian writer and polemicist Stephen Marsh on the show. He was in the process of writing uh, his book, The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future. It is out now appropriately to mark the, uh, the year anniversary of Jan 6. And I'm thrilled that Stephen is joining us. Stephen, what happened to your Arsenal scarf? Why did you take it off? The, the heat turned on. I don't need it anymore. It's Canada, you know, like the weather. You got to respond to the weather. Layers, right? That's how that's how this works. Right. I was just about to decimate you for wearing an Arsenal scarf, and <laughs> and you've taken it off. So you've already disappointed me. I thought we could have a little bit of civil war on this show. Um, so fast, Stephen. You're talking to me from Canada. Mm-hmm. Toronto. Yes. Where's that? Where's Toronto? Oh, no, where's Canada? Um, it's to the north of the United States. Is that it's correct? It's to the north of the United States, yes. It, it, yeah, if you're in the United States and you head north, you will hit Canada. Unless you're in Alaska, of course, in which case... Well, you the are the new Tocqueville, um, Stephen, of America. Only Tocqueville came to America in the 19th century and reported good news. You are reporting bad news from your dispatches from the American future. The next civil war, you suggest in this very engaging and very controversial book that the war has already started. Perhaps it had even started before January 6th. Um, How do you define a civil war and how and why has it started? 
Well, um, I, I wouldn't say that it's already start. I would say it's incipient. I mean, like it's in the process of beginning. Um, you know, the, the technical definition of civil strife for, from PRIO, from the Peace Research Institute of, sorry, Peace Research Institute of Oslo, it's quite a mouthful, uh, is 25 combatant deaths a year, which I think the United States passed long ago, probably about 2010. Civil war goes up to about 1,000 deaths a year, so it starts at about 1,000 deaths a year. So, uh, you know, obviously the next civil war will look nothing like the previous civil war. Uh, it's not a question of, you know, north and south and armed camps uh, facing each other, one wearing white or one wearing gray and one wearing blue. It's more the chaos versus order. It's more violence versus peaceful transition of power. And it's about ins it's about chaos and uh, sectarianism and insurgency rising. And I think when you look at, you know, the basic facts on the ground in America, it's pretty clear that insurgency is rising. Maybe you started college but haven't finished. Are you looking for an accredited institution with a rich heritage in technology? Look to DeVry University. Founded in 1931, DeVry delivers technology-focused education that you can earn on your own time with the flexibility of online classes. Save time and money with qualifying transfer credits and reignite your career path. Scholarships and grants are available to those who apply and qualify. Visit devry.edu forward slash future to learn more. That's devry.edu forward slash future. Restrictions apply. Details at devry.edu. Uh, you have been prolific uh, in the last couple of weeks, Stephen. You have all sorts of pieces True. out. Why the, in the, an interesting piece in uh, foreign policy, why the U.S. military isn't ready for civil war. Um, in The Guardian, you say the, the next civil war is already here. We just refuse to see it. Um, uh, and in uh, the Globe and Mail, a Canadian newspaper, you say 2022 is the year America falls off a cliff. Will Canada hang on? Um, and you also suggest in the Washington Post that while secession might seem the lesser of the two evils, it's also the less likely. Um, let, let's go back to that first foreign policy piece. Um, hmm. Why isn't the U.S. military ready for civil war? My reading of what happened under Trump is that the the military quietly saved the republic um, yes, in the summer during the, the the Black Lives riots, uh, the Black Lives Matter uh, unrest or insurrection, whatever you want to call it, demonstrations. Uh, the military very clearly communicated with Trump that they weren't in the business of of military coups. Is there any truth to that? Oh, yes, I think that's quite accurate. I mean, the one institution, the problem, one of the problems facing America is that the one institution that has both transnational support and also real legitimacy and also keeps its promises and its traditions is the military. That's troubling. The, the military does not want to be in that situation. I mean, they're very explicit about it. They're a tool. They, don't, they cannot really be the backdrop of democracy. Like, if you're relying on the military, to keep your democracy safe, you're, you're in real trouble, um, which they are. Uh, I, I think you're absolutely right.
right, that the military oath constitution uh, is totally sacred. And I, 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 although I have a lot of dark predictions in this book, and there's a certain description of the decline of um, of trust in institutions and the decline of solidarity, that is one that I don't see altering. Uh, like I, I think the I think the military will maintain its devotion to the constitution. It's never shown anything but that. But the, the problem in the, the excerpt from foreign policy, which is an excerpt from the book, is that um, when you're asked to wage war against your own people, which some of these insurgent movements are, are getting to the point where that's what's required, uh, the, the legal requirements for that uh, and, the, and, the, and the, cost for the, mil the cost for military engagement of that is incredibly complicated. It's a, it's a bureaucratic nightmare and navigating it is extremely difficult. And then there's also the fact that, you know, 70 years of counterinsurgency in, Amer in American military has taught them that they can't win, that the only strategy is not to play. So to, to, to like, if you win, you still lose. And if you lose, you lose. So the only strategy is not to play, but not everyone has a luxury of not playing. And they, they may well find themselves in a situation where they're forced to clamp down on real, real civil unrest in the United States. And they are, that, that will be an impossible job for them. Uh, Stephen, you say in The Guardian, the next U.S. civil war is already here. We just refuse to see it. Um, is that because of the Republican Party? Are there two sides to this war? Or is it just an essentially an insurgent, radical, conservative movement who will eventually trigger violence uh, on the left? This is probably unsatisfying, but I, I actually have two answers to that. I mean, I don't obviously when you have people like Mike Neerman in Oregon who let in rioters into his own legislature to be sacked. I mean, there is there's no Democrat like that. Um, there's no there, there's no there's no one. So it's not. You know, the, the, the definitely the violence is coming from far from far right groups. Um, on the other hand, uh, I think it's very important to recognize that what we're seeing here is the decline of institutions. And that is transpartisan. That's not anybody's fault. Like by 2040, about 30 percent of the population will control 68 percent of the Senate. Um, that is just a a system falling apart. And that's not even Mitch McConnell's fault. Uh, that is just that is just simply something that is happening because the Constitution is an 18th century document that they're trying to apply to 21st century realities. And, you know, it just doesn't work. So, you know, obviously, I'm not excusing people like Josh Hawley, who uh, or, or, you know, to me, Mike Pompeo, who like I don't know, no country can survive when its best people, you know, allow its traditions to fall out of out of favor. But on the other hand, um, you know, the, well, the problem might respond. I mean, you, you had an interesting piece also in the Atlantic about how, uh, how Ivy League elites turned against democracy. And you use the example of people like Hawley, uh, who went to yeah. Stanford and Yale Law School, but he might respond if he was on the show that he's just maintaining his um, his commitment to the Constitution. And there's no need to change the Electoral College. Well, no, I'm sure he would because it's in his personal interest to do that. Um, but, you know, when you raise your fist to encourage people that then you need to enter secure rooms to be protected from, you know, I mean, that's why I call it in the piece of suicide of the elites. Like 
there is this there is this kind of feeling that like they don't have to take care of their institutions their institutions they can they just need to thrive within their institutions and it's like no these institutions are actually quite vulnerable right now and and they're they're threatening the lives of the people who are in a sense dismantling them I mean, it's, it's interesting very- right that um that your book is is covers a lot of ground it's it's very well written and it's it's it, it reads almost like a novel and i mean that in a good way uh, right. It's not boring. Uh, it's not full, filled with data like some other books on this stuff. Um, and you're covering not just the violence and radicalism on the right, but a, a kind of, as I said, a crisis of elites. We've dealt with this a lot in the show, this idea yeah. uh, of uh, of Ivy League elitism, which many people have come on the show, people like uh, Daniel Markovitz from Yale University. Uh, what is the role of the collapse or the crisis of credibility or legitimacy of the Ivy League universities in this fall into civil war? Well, I mean, as I argue in the piece, it, it it's real and it's present. I, I mean, there's so many factors that are at play here that I'm not sure I would identify that one as particularly important. I mean, I think the fact. Well, that you wrote a big piece in the Atlantic. Yeah, I wrote a big piece about it. But if you're asking me, like, you know, did the Ivy Leagues cause the current collapse? I, like, I, I don't think I would make that argument. On the other hand, what I would say is that um, this particular aristocracy of networks, which is what the Ivy League is, um, definitely creates this intense kind of hubris, uh, which, you know, reading, I, I reread before I wrote that piece, The Best and the Brightest by David Halberstam. I mean, it's it's the same thing, the same thing that he was writing about in 1962 is exactly what happened in 2002, like, it, and also in 2015. And Christopher uh, like, Lash wrote about the same stuff as well. Did he? Yeah, yeah right. I mean, like, time. it's... It, it's exactly the like it's, and the process Bell, is re- yeah and Daniel Bell right and the process has just repeated itself endlessly where you get I mean I think Halberstam's phrase I quoted it in the piece but it's uh you know brilliant decisions that defy common sense right like that and and, and like the the when you read about the preparations for the Vietnam War incredibly brilliant incredibly brilliant people doing it they just didn't even know that they were walking into a nationalist war rather than a war against communism than an ideological one they didn't have basic facts and that and that has repeated itself over and over again do you think Stephen that there's also you know you in in your in your Atlantic piece you go after Hawley and another a number of other people on the right. But is there also an argument to make that progressives have also lost touch with reality, with their focus on identity, on the politics of oh, yeah. race? Yeah. I and mean, is that, that uh, also a part of, if not the drift into civil war, the crisis of the republic? Uh, it is, but in a very specific way. Because one of the things you have to recognize about when like when I when I'm doing this analysis of what are the factors like you know I'm talking to a lot of people about agriculture about uh, you, you know uh, t- tolerance for violence decline of institutions uh, you know the the very elite obsession over progressive language politics over identity politics is not a significant factor um, it it is somewhat a significant factor in what they call com- uh, uh, what's it called uh, complementary radicalism where when as one group gets radicalized, they radicalize in response 
to other people growing more radical. So they do like the rise of the woke does encourage far right movements to form. Um, but you know, to me, the point is that like, while you were talking about uh, who should play James Bond, um, the other side was taking over, you know, it, militias were infiltrating the educational institutions. Like while you were, you know, writing 800 word apologies about recipes in Bon Appetit as some kind of political act, like they were, sending mobs to election officials houses like to me it's more it's more fiddling while rome burns like the, the the what the left does not need is allyship what we need is solidarity we need allegiance we need people who believe in democratic institutions to say okay we need to preserve these this is what matters it's institutions that matter it's not you know pop culture or whatever so that to me is what is the effect of it. Not, not that it's inherently um, violent because it is, I mean, there are examples like Chaz and there are a few, but they die so quickly, right? I mean, woke institution is basically a contradiction in terms. They cannot, anytime they form an institution, it dissolves almost immediately because they shred each other so quickly. So, and, and that makes actual progressive action measurably harder. So, you know, like on the one hand, they don't really matter very much. But on the other hand, the fact that they make themselves irrelevant so quickly really does matter. I am speaking with Stephen Marsh from Toronto in Canada, author of Big Hit, the new book, The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future. One of the dispatches in the book, one of the more memorable dispatches, um, Stephen, was the assassination or the imaginary assassination of an American president, the killing of a president, you, and I'm quoting you from the book, you say it's the fastest way to change history. And of course, it's bound up in the cult of violence of individual killers. Um, I was struck when actually when I was reading the book um, a few weeks ago by the cult that's grown up around Kyle Rittenhouse. Is he the kind of character driven to this demonstration by his mother, ending up killing a couple of Black Lives Matter demonstrators. Is he the kind of figure you think who might change history, who might trigger a full-blown civil war in America by assassinating a president? Does he fit the cultural sociological profile? I mean, like he doesn't actually fit the sociological profile of an assassin that I have in the book. Um, he had a job. He was, uh, he had- he, from what I remember in the book, he was sort of, he was living with his mother. He wasn't getting on with his mother. He was living in yeah. his bedroom. He was unhappy. He was alienated. He was a sort of, he was, he came out of a Dirk Hymian text. Yeah. And well, he came out of like the exact, like this, the person who killed all those uh, people in a Walmart in El Paso and Dylan Roof and, and, and a several other mass killers. Um, they were they were the model because they all had the same pattern and they all emerged out of the same seri- some nexus of meanings. And of course, there's quite an extensive interview with the, an, the leading expert on stochastic terrorism who really tries to quantify how these psychological... You might define that. That's a word that comes up quite a lot in the book. Stochastic, stochastic yeah. terrorism. What do you mean by that? Stochastic terrorism is not, it's like, it's not Al-Qaeda. It's not uh, some bad guy in a cave plotting things. It's people who self-radicalize online. And, you know, literally sometimes they can go from quite normal people to murderers in weeks, in in like a very, very short part of time. And And by the way, um, uh, not casting uh, any accusations at you, Stephen, but did you know that Bin Laden was an Arsenal fan? 
Was he? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, never trust know, the Arsenal, reject, Stephen. You should reject every everything I say. Then, although I'm not a true, you're Arsenal not an Arsenal fan. fan. You're the friend of an well, Arsenal fan. That's, a, that's friend probably of an less fan. less offensive. I mean, if, but if you knew if you knew Osama bin Laden, you know, you'd probably be under suspicion. But um, yeah, so I don't think I don't think he would actually fall specifically in that category. To me, he he's just another insurgent. I mean, he's like he's like the the Ooh, written house. Written yeah, written house. I mean, he's like he he's just like he just rem, he reminds me. I mean. I, I try to be very precise in the book and not saying anything that I'm quite certain of just because I'm doing such a predictive act and I want to be as absolutely precise as I can be. So I don't really know Kyle Rittenhouse. I've never interviewed him. I don't I don't know much about him, but he he's definitely got a book reminds deal me now. From, he's been turned right. into a sort of a cultural icon on the right, which is very troubling. I mean, that is that is extraordinary to me. Like, I mean, that really is extraordinary to me that someone who would do that would be turned into a hero. But, you know, we're seeing the the the, the rise of acceptance of violence and celebration of violence. I, I mean, I, I feel like that's a point where I, I, as a foreigner, just like I literally don't understand how you could respect somebody who is violent. What <laughs> you do know, you bring to this that uh, Americans are missing? I had Margaret Atwood on the show. She's built a career out of writing about America as a dystopian nightmare. I mean, yeah. all dystopias are nightmares. As a Canadian, of course, in, in your Globe and Mail piece, you, you brought up the issue of Canada hanging on. Canada will, of course, hang on. It always does. Um, but what perspective do you think you bring, in contrast with someone like uh, Barbara Walter, who um, was on the show uh, yesterday, who has a similar book, to you out about the likelihood of civil war in America. She's a San Diego based political scientist. Right. Well, I mean, I think being Canadian, we're sort of insider outsiders to America. I mean, you know, I've worked in America my whole life. I've lived there. I've plenty of family there. I have Trump voting cousins in Seattle. Right. I mean, uh, Canada and America have essentially a kinship relationship, like blood connections so um you know but at the same time we're we're kind of define ourselves as not being american so we we have a kind of familiarity intense familiarity with distance which i think is actually why there's you know malcolm gladwell and margaret atwood and lots of other people who comment on america come from come from canada exactly because we have that familiarity and distance and Um, you also have i mean with michael ignatiev you have a sort of a mastery of political philosophy and democracy, which some Americans lack, I think. Well, I I mean, there are plenty of extremely brilliant Americans who know everything about American politics. But, you know, the other thing is we're not raised, Americans are really raised to believe they're the greatest country on earth and that their systems are the solution to history and the the end of government. Like, the, 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 you know, one of the most extraordinary things about reporting this book is I'm going to talk to Black Lives Matter activists. I'm talking to neo-Nazis. I'm talking to Oath Keepers. I'm talking to Texas nationalists. I'm talking to California nationalists. They all worship the Constitution. I mean, you know, when you talk to a Quebec separatist, they don't say that they're trying to keep in they're trying to keep in the spirit of the British North America Act. They want to end the country. That's the whole idea, right? They don't want its founding documents anymore. And but when you talk to, you know, Americans of every of every political stripe, you know, New York Times editors, Texas nationalists, they both worship the Constitution. And of course, the Constitution is just very old and 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 decrepit. So, you know, I think 
I think that one of the perspectives that you have as a Canadian is that you're not in, you're not imbued with the sort of propaganda of America is the only is the only political solution in the world. That there are other and there are other, there are other ways of doing things that other than the American way. I am speaking with Stephen Marsh, the author of The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future. Stephen has certainly been, I excuse the pun, Stephen, you've heard this many times before, but I can't resist. You've been on a march this week. You're everywhere. You're ubiquitous. And no, I'm sure the book you. is that's already, well, it is good. already a bestseller. It will already, if it's not a bestseller, it will be, but not everyone liked the book. Um Fintan O'Toole, I'm sure you've read this piece in The Atlantic, same place you wrote the thing about the crisis of the elites, was, I don't know if he's critical of your book, he's critical of this way of thinking. Uh, uh, It's entitled Beware... It was very flattering to the book, but... Yeah, I mean, he says, Beware prophecies of civil war. Um, And he said that... uh, uh, we need to beware, be, be very careful about the idea that America is already in a state of civil strife on the threshold of civil war, is quoting from your book. He says, these prophecies have a way of being self-fulfilling. Do you think there's some truth to that criticism? No. I mean, honestly, like, first of all, I don't think I have any power whatsoever to shape the American future. I mean, I, well, like, the book's going to get it, read and discussed. I hope I, I'm sure I'm sure it will. And I, I mean, I from your mouth to God's ear, like I hope it does. But um, but like the truth is that the, the trends that I describe in this book are beyond. They're, I think they're beyond President Biden to control. Like, I don't I don't think they're like they're not. Um, so the idea that describing them, facing them uh, would somehow lead to them happening. I don't really get it. I mean, you know, before the first civil war, no one believed it was going to happen. That didn't work out. You know, I think I think one thing I've noticed, one of the most amazing parts of releasing this book is that I've been talking to you know, some journalists I know, some pretty on the ground people who are all over America. And, you know, because of COVID, I haven't been to America in over a year. Right. And um, they said, you know, they were like, you know, your book's good, but you, you, you're not described. It's accelerating faster than you think it is. And which is not I mean, the situation is worse than you describe it. The, the situation is worse than you describe it, which is not what I was expecting to hear. But also they, they said, um, uh, you, you know, uh, we can't get our readers to pay attention to it. Like when they found the Oath Keepers list, where they found out like registered members of the Oath Keepers, which is a small subset of the group, ha- had found their way into Republican legislatures and school boards and were all over police stations, police uh, police units. Um, you know, the big story that week was Rust. So, I mean, the reason I wrote the book was the shooting on the on the set of Rust. The reason I wrote the book was to say like, okay, this is where you're heading. It's time to have a look at it. it it's based on, um, like I, the, the model I used was uh, The Day After, the which was a piece of fiction written about what a nuclear attack would look like on, um, on Lawrence, Kansas. And that was turned into the miniseries, which then had an effect on the, in the nuclear treaties and so on. And the reason I went, because it's like, okay, you, like I've been on shows today and in previously where they think civil war might be a good thing for the country. I mean, for real, like it never occurred to me for a moment writing this book that anyone could imagine that. I mean, 600,000 people died in the last one. We're talking about mass death on an epic scale. This is, hor- this is a horrible results 
from from inaction and inertia on this. So, no, I mean, I think this is a wake up call. And, you know, I, I think I mean, the, book's the, reasons, the book's a wake up call. And I think one of the reasons it is ubiquitous right now is that people are like, right, we need this wake up call. O'Toole says that um, uh, that you create a, a ridiculously high baseline of American democratic normalcy. How would you respond to that? That, um, uh, that and I'm quoting him here. How, um, he, he says, has the sacred legitimacy of any U.S. president been quite unquestioned ever? Did we imagine the visceral hatred of Bill Clinton among Republicans or Donald Trump insistence that Barack Obama was not even a proper American, let alone the embodiment of the people's will? In other words, O'Toole is saying things haven't changed that dramatically. America has always been um, uh, a, a highly dichotomized political place. Threats of violence have existed. It's always been a violent country. It's always been a very high ownership of guns. So what's different like now? Well, no one said that, no, no one that I recall, I mean, maybe there were some extremists, but no one that I recall said that Bill Clinton stole an election. I mean, I, I, I never heard that. Um, you know, like we're at a point now where almost, almost like the last two of the last four presidents have been in, seen impeachment proceedings. Uh, like that's, that's part, like it is much more different. It's much different than it was in the nineties. I mean, when a significant portion of your population does not believe that the current president was actually legitimately elected, that's different. That's different than that. You know, a lot of writers, like it's not, it's not usually the argument that O'Toole gave, but one that I do hear a lot is, well, things were bad in the sixties. Okay. And Things were bad in the 60s. You know, 140 cities burned after uh, the assassination of MLK. And, you know, there was a real lot of political uncertainty. But I think in, in hindsight, like what you see is that the Civil Rights Act passed with massive bipartisan support. When Kennedy was assassinated, it was treated by everyone, both parties, as a national tragedy to be mourned collectively. You, know, you could never say that about a, a presidential assassination now. I mean, if God forbid, if Biden were assassinated, there would be celebrations on the streets in Republican towns. And the same would have happened if Trump had been assassinated. You, I mean, are it, you serious? You think if, if, if someone killed, if, if a Rittenhouse-style character killed Biden, there would be public celebrations, what, in Kansas or Missouri? Beyond question. Alabama? Like, you think people would be out on the street cheering like they cheered in Hamburg after the bringing down of the towers. Yeah. I, I mean, there's there's no question there would be in my mind. And you think the I mean, same would have been true in Berkeley or Manhattan if Trump had been assassinated? It sure would have been in my neighborhood. In Toronto, for sure. There's no question it would have been. I mean, he was he was a for, he was a foreign power who was, you know, aggressively against us. So, you know, that makes sense. But yeah, I don't I don't doubt that. And and, uh, and it I would think be interesting. When, I, also, you know, I, I'm not sure on this. Well, I interviewed the guy who runs the, who wrote the book called The Sociology of Assassinations, Swedish expert, a really, he wrote like a 900 page book about it, amazing scholarship. And he was like, oh yes, that, that, that's gone now. Like when, when Palm was killed in Sweden, there was true national mourning. I think they actually, they just shut down the legislature for a while. Uh, you know, they, uh, the, the same thing would, the same thing would happen in Canada if either party guy was assassinated. So I, I think it would even happen in England today. I mean, it's much more partisan, but it would not happen in the United States. So, you know, I didn't get that opinion from myself. I got that opinion from the leading expert in the world. Yeah. Um, but 
Yeah, but, I mean, you know, that uh, is, I, I mean, it, I would be. I, I personally it would be would a, a fascinating exper experiment to see see what would happen. Fortunately, uh, it certainly hasn't happened yet. As I mentioned, Stephen, we had Barbara Walter on the show, and I want to show mm -hmm. a couple of clips from um, her the conversation I had with her uh, because I, I want to get your response. Here's Walter's. And analysis, which I don't think in some ways is that different from yours in terms of no, it's not. why America might be falling into civil war. So this is about a minute clip and then we'll be back. The reason anocracies are important and the reason why um, I start the book with them is that this model that was developed um, after putting in 56 different variables, everything from poverty to income inequality to um, how heterogeneous ethnically a country was. We put in all these variables and only two ended up coming out um, particularly important in helping to predict where we're likely to see um, a violence. The first was this variable we call anocracy. Um, countries that um, had elements of both autocracy and democracy were the ones that were at greatest risk of civil war. In fact, when we looked at the data, the most democratic countries and the most autocratic countries um, rarely had civil wars. The civil wars tended to happen in the middle. The second factor was what we called ethnic factionalism. Uh, you, we've already talked a little bit about anocracy, this semi-democratic yeah. state that you suggest America's already drifted into. I don't want to go back to that, but let's talk about ethnic factionalism. For Walter, mm -hmm. um, America is defined by its ethnic factionalism, which is a polite way of describing possible, I guess, racial civil war. Do you buy that argument? And are those the two key metrics, would you agree, with... with um, with Walter for determining whether or not countries are liable to fall into civil war, anocracy, and ethnic conflict? Uh, there's no question those are the, the two big ones for civil war, although uh, I would say that the, it, it changes quite dramatically if you just talk about increases in political violence, which to me, what, what the next civil war is going to be kind of on that border between like a full-blown civil war and just the normalization of political violence. Uh, not, not to. She, she's absolutely right. But there, there are other. There are definitely other models. Like there's environmental models, and there's, um, and and then there's um, delegitimization models, and then there's the PRIO model. I mean, they're 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 all various strengths and so on, and they all have their their merits and their demerits. Uh, the ethnic factionalism, obviously, is key. The one I, I used a sort of different approach that was developed by these um, English economists about the rise in political violence, which um, they they have done this fascinating study of how um, as marginalized groups come to equality and the and the sort of leading the uh, dominant groups not they don't necessarily lose but as the people come come up get close to them that's when violence spikes and the, the fascinating thing is that you can see that all over the world right it's true in india with they their model was hindu muslim violence which they just tracked with expenditures which it's an incredible study really um but so as muslims are able to spend as much as hindus that's when the violence gets crazy and you know when you're talking about america like one of the horrible things about this moment is that one of the leading causes of 
the, the violence, the political violence, is that African Americans and Latino Americans have lower levels of poverty than they've ever had, and they're getting, and the, and the country is going to be a majority minority country probably by 2040. So to me, the, like ethnic factionalism for sure around the world is a big cause of it. And, and, actually, and, uh, to me, there's a more specific cause. And do you believe that the the fact that whites will quite soon be in a minority in America, is that a reason to believe that America is more or like less likely to fall into civil war? Oh, it's much more likely. I mean, that's the engine of this toxicity as well as, well as the... Uh, the simple collapse of democratic norms and the and, and the and the sort of the Why? lack of legitimacy because the whites will fight. Well, as they as I mean that is what what happens. I mean the the new study about who actually was at the January sixth uh, like the a year ago is that they almost the one predicting cap, capacity. It wasn't even they didn't even necessarily belong to militias. Um, the one thing is that they came from counties where. African Americans and Latino Americans had had exactly this phenomenon where they'd risen up and 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 taken sort of and, and sort of reached equality with white people in these neighborhoods very recently. It wasn't even it, all the other economic factors were were not even remotely as important as that. So to me, that was a pretty like it was like right. That's the finger on the thumb of the problem. That's exactly what it is. It's not even all the everything else is kind of a result a result of that it's sort of a, a, a an unintended consequence of that reality so here's where you disagree with walter i want to end on this i want to have one more clip from walter and then i want a, a final statement from you on this so walter's basically believes in america and you don't and you make it clear that your mother i think came from switzerland your husband was from canada and that at one point you were even thinking of leaving the country but you're a believer. And for you, ultimately, perhaps in contrast with somebody like Stephen Marsh, who, as it happens, lives in Canada, uh, you're staying and you're fighting against civil war. Is that fair? Yes, it is. So the United States is going to be the first majority white country in the world to transition to majority non-white, but it's going to happen in Canada. It's going to happen in New Zealand. It's going to happen in the UK. It's going to happen with all the majority white European countries by about 2,100. So the United States, I think, has this opportunity to lead the world, to show it how we can transition from uh, what had once been an, an ethnically or a relatively ethnically homogeneous country to a multi-ethnic country and still maintain democracy and still economically thrive and in fact come out better as a result. So I'm committed to that ideal. I really do believe we will be better. I live in California. California is already minority white and it has thrived as a minority white um, state. And, and I really, really do wanna be here to help, um, help America with that transition. And that comes back also, I think, to the uh, the O'Toole critique of to you, not you, but this kind of approach of treating civil war as inevitable takes out human agency. So, so two final thoughts, uh, Stephen, on this. Surely there's still some agency left that we can avoid the kind of racial civil war that you're predicting. And secondly, no, it's not racial. Well, partly racial. You you suggested it was white against black and brown. uh, That's not what I would say. But anyway, 
that, but, but, sorry, go uh, we'll, we'll respond to it. But you, I mean, she, she does as well. I mean, she says that that could be the trigger. Right. I, I mean, you know, the thing is, I, my country's almost broken up twice in my lifetime, right? Like Canada almost dissolved in 1980, and then we came within one percentage point of breaking up in 95. I mean, we're not unfamiliar with political um, turmoil. You know, in, in 1974, they declared martial law here. They, were, they just rounded up people and arrested them without cause. I mean, you know, we I, I think we see, we, it, I, I'm not I'm not arguing at all remotely for the superiority of Canada or something like that. I mean, no, I know you're not, I'm not accusing you. We're, 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 we're absolutely vulnerable. But, you know, um, and, and of course, if, it's natural that her this, you know, your country is like your mother, you fight for her, right? Like you like, of course, if you're, if you're going to fight for if you're going to, if you're going to, if you're going to, if you're seeing what's happening, you want to fight for your country, of course, I'm just calling it as I see it, right? And what what I what I don't see what I what I see genuinely is that there's definitely agency. Um, I just don't see a lot of it. Because the 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 two things that are really necessary are a really active FBI attempt to destroy and disrupt domestic terrorism, for which, which is has a huge amount of structural barriers to that to achieving that. But you know they got the mob out of New York NYPD. Like they are good at their jobs. Like, but it would be that kind of effort. It would be a generational effort to crush domestic terrorism. And then the other thing is really reforming at a structural level the electoral process so that it doesn't become a pseudo democracy. And, you know, that, so there is human agency, but that's what's required. It's not, things are just going to work out. We don't, or, it, and it's not just like America is going to find a way that those are not, what's not going to happen. And, and, you know, frankly, when I look at Biden's administration, what I see is a lot of like faith in its institutions, trying to preserve faith in those institutions, but not really understanding that those institutions need pretty much ground up reformation of a quite a radical variety if you're if, if you want my opinion like right, I, and, I don't and, and what walter says is that and, and she she comes to this from her study of the yugoslav civil war civil wars and I, i'm sure you would agree with this often happen without anyone expecting it they say that we're suddenly oh, in yeah. the middle of a civil war so for the majority of people and particularly people watching this but i'm guessing also the majority of americans who don't want civil war one thing, Stephen, that we can do to try and avert this catastrophe. You know, I, I think actually the big player in this is going to be the FBI. That, that it's not going to be the military. It's going to be the FBI. It's not going to be the Secret Service either. The, they, the Secret Service do their best. They're already at 100%. It's going to be whether the FBI can actively destroy domestic terrorism and, and will undertake it very seriously. Now, what happens when a Repu another Republican president comes in who has a lot of Oath Keepers and a lot of militiamen as supporters? Very hard to know. But I do know that as long as you have a Democratic president, that is one thing that he can do, is that he can really, really invest heavily in that. So, you know, if you were asking me for what I would do, that, that would be number one priority, all other priorities rescinded, to quote Elon. Well, Stephen, as always, a real... Honor to talk to you. Congratulations on the book, The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future. Incredibly provocative and relevant. Your timing, as always, is perfect. The book is out right now to celebrate or perhaps to mark uh, February 6th, 2001. 
And I'm sure that uh, you're going to do a follow-up. You're going to do a, a be a Michael Wolf and have a series on this. But the third Civil War, what would the uh, what would the, what would the sequel be? <laughs> you tell me. I think we'll wait for this one to see how this one plays out before we. Go okay, well, we'll wait for the, yeah. the the next Civil War when it happens, Stephen. You're coming back on the show, and according to you, it's probably going to happen, or it's already happening in 2022. So we'll have I you back know. on the show. You're one of my regulars, and you're very good natured and very um, and very uh, articulate. So a real pleasure, Stephen. And Go oh my God! And you just you just waved the Bin Laden flag. <laughs> Thank you so much. We'll have to end this now. Ciao.